Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, hello. Welcome back. Sup? Or as I always like to say, ahoy hoy. Ah, I thought maybe you were going to give me a hello there, but no, I'm with a hoy hoy. That works too. Uh, so, Kieran, I don't know if you know, our download numbers in the Philippines went through the roof last week <laughs> as the entire nation tuned in to learn the correct pronunciation right. of that boxer Nonito's last name. I'm wondering, do you, do you have any tips for anyone still struggling with that? Any tricks you use, like, you know, close your eyes and pretend you're a starving baby goat screaming out for food? What, what's the secret to saying Nonito's last name just right? The secret is to completely ignore everything that Eric Raskin says about how to pronounce that name. I was perfectly happy. I was perfectly happy. It was Nanito Denaire. Life was good. I'd say hi to him. He'd say hi to me. It was all great. And then Eric started saying there was another pronunciation to it. And it just threw me off. And life just hasn't quite been the same since. I don't think you should really blame me for this. This is really oh, Rafe I Bartho- think I it's Rafe Bartholomew's fault. Maybe, oh, is it? maybe I'm the one who passed his pronunciation along to you, and thus I'm more the direct problem for you. Oh, but really, okay. I learned all about Donaire from Rafe Bartholomew. Um, yeah. Although my my whole position on all of this is once you've been called Kiernan by A.C. Slater in front of a few thousand people, <laughs> you're actually allowed legally to say anyone's name however you want. That's the law. That's true. It's true. Yes, there you go. Um, We have uh, a lot to cover this week on the podcast, uh, including how to pronounce various fighters' names. There'll be a test (laughs) that we'll be putting up on social media. Um, It is fight week. It is arguably the most significant fight in the history of women's boxing uh, this Saturday night, April 13th on Showtime. A battle of unbeatens meeting to unify the female middleweight title. Clarissa Shields versus Christina Hammer. So we'll preview that fight in detail. We will also look ahead to other fights coming up this weekend, including the return of pound-for-pound champ Vasily Lomachenko. We'll analyze news from around the boxing world, and we'll take a quick dip into the mailbag. But first, let's talk about the only fight card of note, really, this past weekend, the Showbox triple header from Las Vegas. And it all went according to script, all three Mayweather promotions prospects prevailing uh, in the main event. Super bantamweight Angelo Leo won a unanimous decision win over Neil John Tabernau, earning both Eric and me the maximum three points in our picks competition. Uh, in the co-feature, 130-pounder Xavier Martinez made very quick work of John Moralde, stopping him in the third round. And in the opening bout, Andres Savage Cortez got off the canvas in round four to win an eight-round unanimous decision over Jamal Dyer. Uh, Martinez certainly had the most impressive win, but sometimes that's a matter of style and opponent. Um... Based on what we saw on Friday night, does he seem to you to be the best of the three prospects we saw in action? I would say so, but with some caveats. It's a qualified, yes. Martinez looked the best on this night. And so I think it's fair to say he has the highest ceiling of the three prospects at this point, especially because he's only 21, which is the same age as Cortez, but three years younger than Leo. Martinez is long, but can fight in close, kind of like the obvious guy to compare him to for reasons we spelled out last week, Chico Corrales. He looks to me like the best prospect of the three. And the big separator is that he can punch. You know, even if Angelo Leo is just as skilled as Martinez, he doesn't have the power that Martinez does. Uh, And by the way, we can rule Cortez out of the discussion for now, I think. He, He clearly does not seem an elite prospect to me. And not just because he got knocked down, you know, that happens. 
but because he's just not fluid enough. He's kind of mm-hmm. stiff and rigid. Mm-hmm. So if I'm asked to pick the best prospect, it's certainly between Martinez and Leo for me. And I do think Leo was in with the tougher style, a guy in Tabanao who didn't want to lead. So that's why I'm picking Martinez, but I'm qualifying it. I'm saying he looks like the highest upside prospect on the card, but I'm open to the possibility that he and Leo could switch positions next time against mm. different opponents. Do you see it the same way, Kieran? Um, similarly, I think maybe a bit higher on, on Martinez, relatively speaking. I, I think in ascending order of performance, I agree with you. Look, Andres Cortez uh, is probably the more disappointed, should be the more disappointed with his showing. Um, he had some good moments in there. Um, he did show some skill, uh, but, you know, Dyer was the softest of the three televised B-sides, and Cortez might have expected to get him out of there. I think part of the problem was that he expected to get him out of there, um, especially after he heard him at the end of the third, and, and he spent far too much time ahead hunting and, and, and winging power punches, and I'm not sure there was much of a plan B coming from his corner there either. Um, hopefully he'll learn. Um, there's some skill there, but, yeah, I agree with you. He does seem to be a little bit... Um, behind the uh, the other two, I think Angelo Leo can be very happy with his performance. You know, Tabernau was disappointing that he offered very little, but I think that had a lot to do with Leo and the fact that he had Tabernau confused in the beginning. Um, I said last week that Tabernau was exactly the kind of opponent who would show us what we had in Leo. I, I think he did just that. You know, Leo showed patience, he showed skill, showed adaptability, showed aggressiveness when needed, caution when it felt warranted. Um, I thought he'd win six or seven rounds. You figured he'd win eight or nine, and he won all ten. Uh, and with the possible exception of the first, where nothing really happened, I don't think any of them are really very close. Um, but yeah, to look, to me, the standout was clearly Martinez. Uh, I don't think it was just a style matchup or a quality of opponent thing here. You know, Moraldi, as we discussed before, he's been in tough. Um, and nobody's walked through him the way that Martinez did. Uh, Raul Marquez was the happiest guy. Uh, on the broadcast and in Las Vegas after calling it at the top of the broadcast saying he felt Martinez was the cream of the crop and that he expected right. him to produce a breakout performance and he and he, and he did I, I loved what we saw of, of Martinez he was very relaxed from the opening bell that was very obvious and and that was good to see I thought he cut off the ring well um, he pushed his man backward effortlessly uh, he talked a beautiful variety of punches you know just relentless aggression all the way through a complete beatdown. Uh, uh, I very much want to see Xavier Martinez again. Agree. Uh, and you mentioned Raul Marquez. Maybe the highlight of the night for me was after a nasty head clash in the Leo Tabanau fight, Leo swelled up, but he didn't get cut, leading Raul Marquez <laughs> to say, I wish I would have had that skin. <laughs> a great line from Raul, who in case any listeners weren't around for Raul's boxing career, he was a serious bleeder. Uh, yeah. I was ringside for his fight with Yori Boy Campus, after which Bill Detloff wrote that Raul's head looked like a discarded jack-o'-lantern sitting on the curb waiting to be picked up by the garbage man a week <laughs> after Halloween. Uh, poor Raul. Good fighter. Uncooperative skin. Uh, but not the case for Angelo Leo. So we know now that Leo has the skin of a champion. Uh, beyond that, did you see anything in this fight that sways you one way or the other on whether he can actually be a future champ? He has two things that are going to stand him in really good stead. He has speed, hand speed, and he has very, very sound fundamentals. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, speed kills, obviously, uh, and Leo's speed. It's going to make him difficult to fight. If you try to counter him, you're going to struggle because he's going to counter you first, probably. And if you try to come at him, you 
probably playing right into his hands again because of that speed. But for me, as much as the, the hand speed there, it was the fundamentals that I liked. I, I, I always enjoy watching boxers who have really good balance, who are nice and compact. And that was Leo uh, on Friday night. He had great footwork as well. I like the way that, you know, when he was moving sideways and backwards and countering and when he was coming on strong in the final few rounds as well, he was pivoting very nicely. Um, so, so I like that. The handicap, obviously, is it appears that he doesn't have much pop. Right. Um, and not having that deterrent factor might count against him as he moves up the ladder. Because there are going to be other guys with really good fundamentals and guys with good hand speed who can actually hurt you as well. So, um, you know, even when he was pinned against the ropes there in the latter part of the contest, you never sensed that Tabernau felt he was in great danger. He obviously wasn't having fun, um, but he looked like he was just about handling it. Um, you know, and maybe that lack of knockout power would count against... Uh, uh, Leah becoming a star as well. But, you know, boxers have been champions and they've been very popular without a big KO punch. It's certainly not disqualifying. Um, and as Barry and Raul and Steve all mentioned during the broadcast, I'd, I would like to see him against a more aggressive opponent. I'd like right. to see him against somebody who will come to him and surely bring out the best in him. Uh, I do want to see him again. I do think he has a high ceiling, but I, on this night, he, he was outclassed by Martinez. Or overshadowed, I should say, rather than outclassed. Yeah, I, I would say that that's that, that's a good word for it. And uh, yeah, I mean, Leo needs look no farther than his own promoter, right. uh, Floyd Mayweather, to see a guy who showed that you don't have to be an A plus puncher or even a, a B plus puncher. You can be just sort of a, a decent puncher if you have the skills. You'll get there. And I'm not saying, you know, don't don't take this out of context that Raskin right. said Angelo Leo has Floyd <laughs> exactly. Mayweather skills. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he can definitely still go some places uh, because he has such good skills, despite the fact that he's not a big puncher. Agreed. All right. So from this past weekend's Showtime boxing card, let's look ahead to this coming weekend's Showtime fight. Uh, we've been calling it the biggest fight in women's boxing history. Others have well. It is two time. Olympic gold medalist Clarissa Shields of Flint, Michigan, 8-0 with two KOs, 24 years old, against Christina Hammer of Germany, 24-0 with 11 KOs, 28 years old. Both have pieces of the female middleweight title. Um, so let's start, Eric, by challenging our own premise here. A central conversation piece surrounding this bout. Uh, is this, in fact, the biggest women's fight ever? Maybe. Back to you, Kieran. <laughs> All right, all right. I guess I should expound That'll on that. That'll do it for another episode. <laughs> um, I'm not sure biggest is the right word. Maybe best. Maybe yeah. highest combined ability of the two fighters. Maybe most significant or most important. Uh, but I think there have been bigger fights that have gotten more attention. Not many, mind you. I mean, I'm talking one or two. Uh, Layla Ali versus Christy Martin was bigger, in my view. It headlined a pay-per-view. They were both legit mainstream names. It was a bigger event. Uh, and maybe Ali versus Jackie Frazier, uh, though they were right. both kind of novices at the time, they had the name value. But I do feel Shields versus Hammer is up there in the top three or so. And it's the most significant because I don't think we've seen two female fighters of this caliber meet in their primes before. Uh, Leila Ali versus Ann Wolf didn't happen. Christy Martin versus Lucia Riker didn't happen. Holly Holm wasn't really a name yet when she beat Christy Martin. Christy Martin was 35 and past her best and really at least two divisions smaller than Leila Ali when they fought. You know, Cecilia Brakus hasn't faced a fellow star. There are just a lot of near misses in these last 20 years or so of women's boxing. And this one was almost a near miss. It was on and then it was off and we yeah. weren't sure if it was going to happen. But now that it's happening, 
this is the best quality, most significant fight we've ever seen in women's boxing. But I don't think I can call it the biggest because Ali versus Martin happened. Uh, but, you know, if, if Showtime is looking for a pull quote uh, for me here, you know, Seth Nyman, Chris de Blasio, whoever else, I hope you're listening. Shields versus Hammer is the most important fight in the history of women's boxing. How, how's that? Does that make up for me not committing to calling it the biggest? Shameless is what it is. He says to use another Showtime title. There you go. The old, the old double plug. <laughs> Drop a Showtime title and uh, accuse me of being shameless, which is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so you asked me a serious question, Kieran. So I have a serious question for you. I hadn't even noticed until recently that the boxer's surnames are both pieces of weaponry. So have you ever considered what you would prefer to have in a fight? A hammer or a shield? Ugh. No, Eric, I have not. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of expected you to say something boring like that. Uh, so that's why I decided to bring in a ringer to help answer this question. I figure the world's most celebrated hammer wielder is Thor. And the world's foremost possessor of a shield is Captain America. So I took the liberty of asking my nine-year-old son, Eli, who has seen every age-appropriate film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, who would win a fight between Thor and Captain America? And here's what he had to say. All right, I'm joined now by my son, Eli. Eli, how old are you? Nine. Okay, so uh, I don't want to be in violation of any child labor laws, so we're going to keep this brief. Quick question for you. I want a quick answer. Who would win a fight between Thor and Captain America? I think most people would say Captain America because he's like the first Avenger, the strongest Avenger. But I would say Thor because if you really think about it, he's like a god, they call him in, in the movies. Mm. And he he's, has like electricity, so he can just electrocute him and automatically beat him. And they say that Captain America's shield is made out of the strongest metal. But Thor's hammer is made out of metal also, which, like, sends electricity everywhere. So I would actually say Thor. Okay, but you're saying most people would say Captain America, but you're going with the contrarian choice and saying Thor would win the fight. Yes. Okay, that's great. Uh, that's just what we need. We need Brian Daly listening to us, listening to that, and thinking, you know what, that kid's probably a damn sight cheaper than the other two knuckleheads. <laughs> which I guess would still work out fine for you. Right, but, you true. Know, Anyway, look, so well done, Eli. Welcome to the podcast and congratulations. <laughs> Not least, of course, because he is completely right. Of course, Thor would win, as Eli points out. Look, Captain America is an infantry private. God bless our troops. But Thor is a freaking god. And as for the weaponry, look, while respecting the awesome capabilities of Valdanium, Wakanda forever and all of that, the fact is that the adoption of a shield as a primary weapon of choice is to choose as a default an inherently defensive posture, whereas Thor doesn't just have a hammer. He possesses Mjolnir, forged by dwarven blacksmiths in the core of a dying star. <laughs> Anyway, I don't really have an opinion on the matter. Absolutely <laughs> no, so. not. Wow. Okay, so uh, Eli is the number two fan of Marvel movies uh, <laughs> to speak so far on this podcast, I guess. Didn't realize. Uh, I sh I shouldn't. Say, I was about to say I didn't realize quite what a nerd you are, but I guess I did realize. Oh, it. I think. I think but I guess I did. I didn't know that your nerddom extended to the MCU. Now I know. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. On a no slightly opinion. more serious No front. opinion on the matter at all. Right. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me switch to something more serious. Uh, you, you sat down several weeks ago with uh, Claressa Shields and Christina Hammer for a double interview. Uh, the video is available on the Showtime YouTube page. I recommend everyone check it out. It got animated, especially at the end, when the two ladies started talking about whether they expect to be friends after the fight is over. Uh, from sitting with them and then watching the video back, did you come away with a sense that one fighter or the other holds any mental edge? No, not really. But, you know, the one thing I will say is, I'm sure you've experienced this, is, you know, sometimes you'll talk to a fighter and they'll express confidence um, and they'll all say similar things. But sometimes you come away with a sense that, oh, yeah, you know what? This guy really, really believes it. Or, you know, this one's bluffing a little bit. Uh, but with these two, I came away feeling there's, there's genuine, exceptional self-confidence in both corners. There's a difference in the personality and that's reflected perhaps even a little bit in their fighting styles it's, it's a little bit of a fire and ice thing there you know caresses mm. the fire she gets she gets genuinely annoyed by the notion that anybody might be better than her um and, and might beat her and, and she just leaps into the opportunity to talk trash to anybody who, who says that um i was impressed with christina's readiness and ability to come back at her verbally, um, particularly given that we weren't using Christina's first language. But everything I thought that Christina said in that interview, she said with a little bit of a smile, I could tell she was playing the game a little bit and mm. quite enjoying it and finding it all very amusing and quite enjoying needling Clarissa a little bit, I thought. Um, and I was struck by how brutally chilly uh, uh, she could be. You know, Clarissa was actually prepared to be complimentary a couple of times, but... Um, you know, she said, oh, you know, Christina actually has a good job. She's a good fighter. And Christina counted with, well, I haven't seen much progress in Clarissa at all. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, the whole uh, thing at the end where Clarissa said, hey, maybe after this we can be friends. And Christina just snorted at her and goes, right. well, you want to be friends? Um, so it was interesting. Uh, it was, it's an interesting dynamic and it was a good interview. Obviously, how much difference any of it will make in the ring is another matter. Um you know, one of the things, by the way, that they talked about, uh, in fact, that Clarissa boasted about was that she became a world champion in her fourth fight. I, I think it's fair to say there was a difference of opinion between the two about the meaningfulness of that metric. Uh, but the fact is, look, very few fighters in history, male or female, have been on a stage this big after just eight pro fights. Um, Clarissa had an extensive amateur career, but still, as we mentioned, she's only 24. Hammer's easily the best opponent of her career on paper. Would you say she's rushing this at all, Caressa? When you look at just the number of fights, it's normal to think that. You know, she's had eight pro fights. Uh, most prospects are, like, just stepping up to six-rounders at this point. Um, but she had 78 amateur fights, two Olympic runs. She's 24. That's that's not young. That's, that's pretty prime age. I mean, it is young, but uh, especially coming from a couple of old guys like <laughs> us. But again, it's not like it's not like 19 or 20, 24. You're hitting your prime. If you've watched her progression, how much better she looked her last couple of fights compared to her first couple of pro fights? No, I don't think she's rushing. Uh, you know, might she be better served waiting one more year, having like three more fights? Maybe. But win or lose, I think she's ready to fight at this level. This isn't Canelo rushing to fight Floyd Mayweather right. because there is no Floyd Mayweather in women's boxing. I, I think that's important to take into consideration. This is more like Canelo rushing to fight Austin Trout. So my take is 
when she first started calling Hammer out, you know, like when they shared a card on Showbox and got into their little verbal joust in the ring, it would have been a bit of a rush maybe then. But now, two more fights down the road, 20 more rounds under her belt. No, I don't think she's rushing. I think the timing is right for her. You know, it's it's on the front end of right. It's on the early mm. side of right. But it's still within that range, I think. Mm. Now, let's say that Claressa is indeed fully ready for this and that she beats Christina Hammer. We've spoken about how women's boxing could use a Ronda Rousey, you know, someone who gets fans excited in mass numbers, who can sell pay-per-views, who can become one of the top two or three attractions in the sport, regardless of gender. Rousey's time at the top in MMA was brief, but for a couple of years there, there was a hint of prime Mike Tyson to the way that fans got fired up for her fights. Can Claressa Shields, if she prevails on Saturday, possibly become something close to the Ronda Rousey of boxing? Hmm. Well, I mean, the big difference, obviously, is that a big reason for Ronda's success uh, wasn't just that she won fights, but that she won them quickly and brutally and emphatically. It was yes. with those string of arm bars and, and, and then with various other stoppages. And, and that's, you know, where you made the Mike Tyson comparison. And that's really where that came in. And it was especially valid for, for Ronda. Um, and then especially after her final fight with Misha Tate, she sort of went full heel as well. So she really had fans who tuned in to watch her lose as well as those who wanted her to win. Um, and, and a group that really exulted when she did lose. Uh, so Caressa, obviously, with, with larger gloves and, and shorter rounds, just doesn't have that capability really for the same explosive element. So it's different there. But in terms of, you know, if you're meaning like, can she be like a standard bearer for, for women's boxing, certainly in this country? Well, look, she's got the personality. Uh, her public persona, I think, is actually quite sweet, even though it doesn't take much for her to her to get mean and, and talk smack. Right. Um, and, and she doesn't suffer fools gladly. But and she's also got I think this has been sort of undercooked so far. She's got this cool dynamic going on and that she's good buddies with Chris Cyborg who in turn is close with Halle Berry. And I just can't help but feel that there's some kind of cool True Detective Season 4 vibe going on about that whole grouping. Uh, wait, wait, but, Karen, wrong network, wrong network. Oh, yeah, never mind. Still. <laughs> She's got that great backstory, um, you know, fighting back against abuse, standing up for her community of Flint. Um, so, you know, so, Ronda, so I guess Ronda's not entirely analogous outside of gender, but... Uh, the notion that, like Ronda, she could be the leading light for women's boxing right now, I think that's totally valid. Of course, the problem is we've had this before, haven't we? We've had Leila Ali. We've had Christy Martin. We've had Lucia Riker, all these things that you were talking about earlier. You know, and Layla, Layla in particular could have absolutely blown up the sport if yep. she'd stuck around. Um, so we've seen these false starts before, and they've fallen away because of an overly shallow talent pool. So... Whatever happens, I think that's going to be the challenge for mm. Clarissa is, yes, she could become this this big star, but then who after Christina is there for her to test herself against? And and that ultimately is going to be the measuring stick for her as it, as it is really for, for any boxes. Right. Um, and talking of Christina, let's focus actually on her a bit. Um, she hasn't been beaten in 24 fights. She's never come close except for one really bizarre situation in Dessau, Germany in 2014, when Anne-Sophie Mathis held and hit her repeatedly in the fifth round, knocked her down, effectively knocked her out. Uh, she couldn't continue, but the punches were really quite illegal. <laughs> so yeah. Mathis was disqualified, although the result was later changed to no contest. Um, Caressa has held that overhammer uh, constantly. 
uh, pointing to it as proof that that Christina could be hurt, that she could be knocked out. I, I don't know. Do you think that's fair? Is there anything to take away from that fight? I don't think so. I mean, I I get why Shields would use it for trash talk purposes. It's good sure. fodder. You know, Hammer was on the deck. She tried to get up and her legs were doing that baby deer thing a little. Yeah. It makes sense for Clarissa to, to fire that bullet, but it's not a fair criticism. Mathis held her head in place and teed yeah. off a few times before yeah. the ref stepped in. And the last punch, which was completely illegal, knocked her silly. I don't think it says anything at all one way or the other about Hammer's chin. Hammer has never been knocked down legitimately in 24 pro fights. Shields has, of course. You know, it was a flash knockdown against Hannah Gabriels. She wasn't badly hurt, but she's been down. Hammer hasn't. I don't see any reason to question Hammer's chin. She's human, I guess. Uh, that's what we learned when Mathis fouled her. You know, she's this five foot eleven inch mountain of muscle. We we might have thought she was more machine than woman, but <laughs> I guess she's human after all. That, that's honestly about all that I take away from that bizarre incident against Mathis. Right. Okay, Kieran. Let's get to our predictions. Uh, the score in our head to head competition is now twenty nine to twenty three in my favor. You're up first. How do you see this playing out? Who you got? So I think this is a legitimately tough call. Um, both boxers are genuinely skilled. Uh, you know, as, as you just uh, pointed out, they're genuinely tough. Um, they're also, as I mentioned earlier, supremely confident. I think this is going to come down to a clash of styles and who's able to make their style work. Um, Hammer's much more the traditional European boxer. Um, she fights in that upright stance. She's got good footwork. She's got an excellent jab, as even Clarissa was, was forced to concede. Um, and everything for her works off of that jab. Uh, so she, if she's able to deploy it and keep it working and move around based off of it, uh, Shields could be in for a long and difficult night, I think. Um, and that's not the only thing that Hammer has. She's not just a jabber. She also can crack, um, you know, as attested to by a KO percentage. That said, really the jab is the key for her. And she doesn't want to get into a brawl with, with Shields. Not because she can't brawl, um, but because that takes her out of her comfort zone. Um, that takes her away from what she does best. Um, she, but on the other hand, I think Shields, while not necessarily as good a pure boxer as Hammer, can do more things well. And she's obviously a good boxer because she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Um, she's looser in there. I think she's less upright. I think she can show better upper body movement. I think maybe her punch variety is better. So, look, there's a chance that Shields is going to get stymied by, by Hammer's boxing. I could see a scenario in which she's just not able to get to grips with it. And... And Christina's able to pump that jab and keep moving. But I actually think, you know, it might take her a couple of rounds, but I think she will. You know, she's not going to be surprised. Oh, my God, Christina Hammer's got a good jab. Right. She knows that. And she's there, she and her team will be prepared for that. And I still think, you know, when you're confronted with the realities of it, it'll still probably take her a couple of rounds to get past it. It might seem like a, a, she's in a bit of difficulty early on. But I just kind of think that, Ultimately, she will be able to slip inside and under that, start closing the gap, start making life a little bit difficult for Christina, start roughing her up a little bit. Um, you know, I, she won't knock Hammer out, partly because, as you said, Hammer's pretty tough. And those two-minute rounds in women's boxing really disadvantage someone like Clarissa Shields, someone who likes to put pressure on and crank up the pressure over the course of the round. And they benefit a boxer like Christina Hammer, who's able to start off, you know, keeping the distance. And so... So I, there won't be a stoppage. I was tempted to say this would be a majority or split decision, but I think ultimately over the second half of the contest, 
Caressa will separate herself a little bit. I think it will be a unanimous, but not especially wide, decision win for Claressa Shields. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, I have to say, I really struggled with, with this one. As, as it sounds like you did too, but it, yeah. I'm thinking maybe I struggled even more. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm the sports betting guy here. Uh, I cover the gambling industry. Uh, I host Showtime's podcast covering the sports gambling series Action. Uh, three podcasts down, one to go. Check that out on the Showtime sports feed if you haven't yet. Uh, so anyway, I looked up the odds on this fight. You can find slightly different odds, depending on where you look, but they're all within a somewhat consistent range. Uh, I'll quote the DraftKings odds, since they're a partner of Showtime's. Shields is a minus 400 favorite, a 4-1 to wow. one favorite. Hammer is a plus 270 underdog, so 2.7 wow. to 1. Uh, a draw is also a 16 to 1, for those interested. Um, but... The fact that they're such a clear favorite, according to the sports books, and the fact that it's the less experienced Shields, you know, if there was going to be a clear favorite, that surprised me. Uh, so before I make my prediction, let me just say, if I'm going to bet this fight, I'm betting on either Hammer or the draw. You know, looking mm -hmm. at the odds, Hammer is a great bet and Shields is not, in my view, because this is really a 50-50 fight to me. Yep. My initial feeling before spending some time this week re-watching video of both women was to lean toward Hammer. She's the more skilled boxer. She's taller. She has that jab. She's more experienced. I was leaning toward picking her to outbox Shields. But it struck me that most of the times I've seen Hammer looking good in the ring, it's when she's comfortable. You know, she's in charge and there's exactly. not much coming back at her. And that's been the great majority of the rounds and the great majority of her fights. Uh, she's almost always in total control against her opposition. I'm not sure if she can look that good outside her comfort zone. Yeah. And I think Shields will, at least in spots, get her out of her comfort zone. Um, and you know what else? I'm not even so sure that Hammer wins a pure boxing match at this point. Mm. I, I guess I lean toward her if it's that kind of fight. But Clarissa has come a long way. In her last couple of fights, she's looked quicker, slicker. She's gotten really dangerous with that left hook. I think working with John David Jackson is yeah. making a difference. She, she's just much less raw than she was when she turned pro. The more I've watched video, the more I've swung towards Shields having the right skill set and style to beat Christina Hammer. I think it'll be close. I think the draw is not a bad bet at all. But throw in the fact that the fight is in the U.S. Yep. I like it to go the distance, as you do. And I like Clarissa Shields to get her hand raised, as you do. But I will give us just the slightest bit of difference in our picks. I'm saying Clarissa Shields by split decision. You know, I so nearly went with majority. It's interesting. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. The fight being in the U.S. was ultimately what swayed me away from going for a majority decision. Even, yeah, actually. And I think yeah. it's a big part of what accounts for the odds, too, that the odds yeah. makers must be looking at it as Christina Hammer is going to have a hard time winning a close decision. I can't think of any other reason they would view yeah. Shields as that big of a favorite. Yeah. Um, a quick note here. If you want to hear more of Raskin and Mulvaney talking about this fight, well, we have at least one more podcast coming this week, maybe two. But in addition to the podcast, we'll be part of the Weigh In stream team live from Atlantic City alongside the living legend Brian Campbell. Uh, this is a dream stream team, if you ask me. <laughs> Campbell, Raskin, and Mulvaney will be providing expert analysis live on Showtime's YouTube and Facebook pages this Friday. So, Stop whatever you're doing, ditch work, uh, maybe go sit in your car in the parking lot with your phone and let your boss wonder where the hell you went. Whatever it takes, you won't want to miss the weigh-in stream on Friday. 
And Teresa and Christina won't be the only fighters stepping on the scale in Atlantic City on Friday. There's a full card, including two additional televised bouts on Showtime. And there's a chance to see some promising heavyweights in action in a pair of 10-rounders. Jermaine Franklin against Rydell Booker. Maybe a familiar name to some of you. And Otto Wallen against Nick Kistner. Um, let's start with the undefeated Franklin against the once-beaten Booker. Um, the records are similar, but the paths to this fight are so very not similar. <laughs> uh, yeah. What can you tell us about these boxes in this matchup? Yeah, this is interesting. Franklin is your classic heavyweight prospect. 25 years old, 17-0, 13 KOs, Golden Gloves champ. Could have maybe been a 2016 Olympian, but decided to turn pro in 2015 instead. He's from Saginaw, Michigan, which isn't far from Flint. Uh, I would imagine that his fan base and Clarissa Shields' fan base, that there's some overlap there that will be in Atlantic City rooting for both of them. Franklin hasn't really fought anyone I'm familiar with, except recent showbox fighter Willie Jake Jr. Uh, Franklin handed him his first loss. But like I said, classic standard prospect. Different story for Rydell Booker. <laughs> Booker is also from Michigan, uh, Detroit specifically. He was also a top amateur in the late 1990s and early 2000s. From 2001 to 2004, he won his first 22 pro fights. Then he stepped up against James Tony, who was peaking at the time. This was right in between his fights against Evander Holyfield and John Ruiz. And Tony gave the then 23-year-old Booker a boxing lesson. And Booker proceeded to not fight again for 14 years because he spent 12 years in prison for possession of cocaine with intent to sell. I'm not going to go down the road of diving into the pros and cons and biases of our legal system, but 12 years for drugs feels like a lot. Feels feels like more than a wealthy criminal with connections would have gotten. Uh, But anyway, now he's back. He fought three times last year against nondescript opposition. He's 25 and one with 12 knockouts. And at age 38, it's time to find out what he can do against a real prospect in Franklin. Uh, meanwhile, in the other heavyweight bout on this televised triple header, Nick Kisner is a bit of a journeyman at 21-4-1 and one with six knockouts. The clear B-side against Otto Wallen, undefeated out of Sweden at 20-0, 13 KOs. What are you looking for in Wallen's U.S. debut, Kieran? Basically, just to see if he's any good. Look, most of Wallen's fights to this point have been in Sweden and Denmark, uh, neither of which lately is renowned as a hotbed of heavyweight boxing, with all due respect to Brian Nielsen and Robert Hellenius. Um, of course, in the non-heavyweight division, we should point out, Denmark has given us Mikkel Kessler recently. Sweden has delivered us Badu Jack. So mm-hmm. before an angry horde of Scandinavians piles into longboats <laughs> and heads for the northeastern United States. <laughs> respect. Um, so... Uh, Wallen, ultimately, of course, is striving to become the first Swedish world heavyweight champion since Ingemar Johansson, who, he says in a callback to an earlier segment, had a hammer. Mm. There you go. How about that? (laughs) Um, But Wallen uh, uh, does have a good amateur pedigree. Uh, He's faced off against Anthony Joshua a couple of times. He is undefeated as a pro. So I'll certainly be interested, you know, to see what he has. Kisner also actually has some decent amateur bona fides, some national silver gloves titles among them. But it just hasn't quite worked out for him as a pro. Uh, He's fought at Cruiser and at Heavy. Um, Look, moving along to some of the non-Showtime fights this coming weekend. The night before two of the top female fighters clash, the pound-for-pound king on the male side will be in action as Vasily Lomachenko meets Anthony Crawler in Los Angeles with ESPN Plus to televise or stream, as you will. Uh, The undercard gives us Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez against Tommy Carpensey, and also, for better or worse, Mike Alvarado is fighting on the show. Um, But 
all the attention's on the main event. Uh, can Crawler, who is not the original scheduled opponent here, um, provide any kind of a challenge for Lomachenko? You, Eric, are the one who recently offered the hot take, actually, when last time you were together with Brian Campbell, as I recall. Yes. Um, that Loma is past his absolute peak. So is the door open just a crack here? Well, I'll cite the betting odds again. You have to lay $100 to win $1 on Lomachenko. Uh, wow, so, really? Yes. Uh, no, the door is not open. Not even a crack. Uh, no disrespect to Corolla, but he has no prayer here. He's a good fighter. Lomachenko is an all-time great fighter. Even if I stand by my assertion that Lomachenko's absolute finest days are slightly behind him, this should be a cakewalk for him. Corolla is tough, though. I wouldn't rule out the possibility that he might last the distance. Uh, a few other fights of note this weekend. DAZN has a card on Saturday in Monterrey, Mexico, headlined by Jaime Munguia. He takes on Dennis Hogan. No relation to the Hulkster. Uh, we'll see if Dennis Amania can run wild on Munguia. Uh, also, a, a solid card the same night on FS1 as friend of the pod Caleb Truax takes on Peter Quillen in front of his home fans in Minneapolis. And Sergei Derevyanchenko meets Jack Kulke in the co-feature. What are you looking forward to among these fights? And if Truax loses, do we have to worry about there being a Showtime podcast curse? So that's gone above my head. Is it every time we have a fighter on the podcast live from an ice fishing hole, they've lost? <laughs> this, that would, if he loses, yes, that would be a, a true statement <laughs> that it will have happened every time. I don't know. I guess uh, you know one one incident would not make uh, would not a curse make, but it's it would at least be something to look out for. <laughs> true all right so anyway to uh get around answering your question so there's actually a lot to look forward to here um uh in terms of the dome fight i don't really know much about dennis hogan i looked up his record uh he lost to jack Holke actually um doesn't seem to have much of a ko percentage uh but i will say that one of the few joys of the miserable last year we had at hbo in 2018 was being ringside as jaime Munguia bashed his way to prominence um yeah. I don't know how long the Munguia train is going to be going. He's so flawed in oh so many ways, but he's fun and he's powerful and he brings a palpable puppy-like enthusiasm to his in-ring endeavors. So yeah, I'll be watching that. Um, that said, as you said, the FS1 card is, is really solid. Um, you know, we talked last week about being interested in the uh, April 27th Showtime card, uh, mm -hmm. partly to see how Robert Easter can recover from his first career loss. And, if he wants, you know, the example of what not to do after the first career loss, he should have just a big old picture of Peter Quillen, who was flavor of the month until he ran into Daniel Jacobs in 2015 um, and has fought just twice since then. It's interesting. I think had he and Truex met before that fight, I would have made Quillen the big favorite. But now I'm yeah. just not so sure. You know, Quillen is now 35 years old. I was a bit shocked to find out. And um if he's going to turn his career back around, he needs to do so soon. And, and Truex is the guy with recent experience of having to dig deep against tough opposition. So so I, I don't know. That's an interesting fight to me. And in the other one, uh, Derevyanchenko showed us how solid he is with a gutsy uh, and close losing decision to Jacobs. Uh, he's been highly regarded for, for a while, and he's going to want to you know learn to build and want to build and recover from, from that experience. Kolke's solid contender. He hasn't reached the kind of heights that have been expected of, of Derevyanchenko. The interesting thing, though, with Kolke is that even though I'd make Derevyanchenko the favorite here, you know, his, he lost very early on in his career, but his two relatively recent losses were to Demetrius Andrade and Maciej Chulensky, sort of 
lankier boxer types, whereas Derevianchenko is much more, even though he's more than just a brawler, that's, that's, he's much more of a come-forward compact type. So, so it'll be interesting to see you know, if Kolke might perform better against someone like a Derevianchenko, but we'll see. And you said uh, Quillen was the flavor of the month. You know what flavor, of course. Oh, boy. No. Chocolate. Come on. Come oh. on. It was so easy. Kid chocolate. Oh, Come on, that Kieran. That was. You're better was than that. Bad. I am. <laughs> uh, well, evidently, I'm not. <laughs> no. And evidently, See? I'm not See either. How soon we forget, Peter. See? Yes. That's right. what happens. Yep. Oh, well. Anyway. All right. Uh, a lot of important stuff being addressed in this podcast. <laughs> All the important stuff in the world, I feel like. We're we're really covering it, yeah. All right, a handful of quick news items to address. Uh, First, the biggest fight announcement of the week. Alexander Usyk has an opponent for his heavyweight debut. He'll meet Carlos DeCam on May 25th at the MGM National Harbor in Knoxon Hill, Maryland, just across the Potomac River from where I used to live. Uh, Usyk wanted to fight Alexander Povetkin. That didn't happen, or at least isn't happening yet uh, to Cam. Uh, somewhat softer touch than Povietkin, but still a real test, I think it's safe to say, for a heavyweight debut. Do you think there's any danger here for Usyk? Probably not. Takuma's probably the right guy. Just respected enough to qualify as a solid opponent for a heavyweight debut. Not really a threat to win, although, you know, Usyk will be getting punched by a 240-pound man for the first time, so you can't be sure how he'll handle that. This isn't the serious test that Povetkin would have been, certainly. You know, Takam is, is, is definitely a level down from that. In fact, he was stopped by Povetkin a, a few years ago. But, you know, in this decade, he's only lost to top guys. Anthony Joshua, Derek Chisora, Joseph Parker, and Povetkin. So we'll have something to measure Usyk against here. We'll come out of this, I think, with a better sense of, of whether Usyk would stand a chance against mm. Wilder, Joshua, or Fury. Uh, In other news, to follow up on a conversation from last week, we got a diagnosis on Dudu Ngumbu. It's a torn ligament in his right calf. You just want to say that again, isn't it? Say what? what? Oh, Dudu Ngumbu? (laughs) Yes, I do. It's true. Um, I still have no idea how he managed that injury. Uh, Nothing seemed to happen, but... He tore a ligament in his right calf. That was the injury that ended his challenge of Alexander Gvozdik. And one other thing worth mentioning, the great Hall of Famer Al Bernstein, our colleague at Showtime, one of the most unanimously liked people in this business, shared some bad news and some good news on social media this week. The bad news, Al was diagnosed with prostate cancer a few months ago. The good news, after early detection and radiation therapy, Al is cancer-free, and Al got quite the outpouring of affection on Twitter after sharing the news. It was nice to see that such positivity is possible on Twitter. And it's really typical of Al, isn't it, to not say a word about it right. until it was all over. I think, you know, you mentioned about how liked he is, and I think one of the reasons for that is, yeah, not only is he like an urbane and witty and, and genuinely gentle so he's just not the sort of person to draw attention to himself mm-hmm. at all especially for something as trivial and self-indulgent as a potentially terminal disease <laughs> um you know it's like he, he hated all that business with adrian bronner earlier this year um when 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 bronner turned on him at that press conference he not because bronner was a brat but because it put al at the center of attention and right. conversation during fight week and and that's somewhere that he believes as an old school journalist that he doesn't belong and um He's really just a very kind and gentle guy. It's wonderful in the news to hear that he's okay uh, and that he'll be ringside calling fights uh, for a while longer for Showtime. And also probably, I'm sure, 
uh, crooning away in the lounge at the Tuscany Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas sometime soon. If you didn't know, Al Bernstein's actually a pretty good Vegas lounge singer as well. He's got that other gig going on. Yep. All right, we are nearing the finish line, uh, but before we get there, let's open up the mailbag. Uh, as always, send us questions or comments on Twitter with the hashtag AskShowPod. And we got one recently from at Tom Hoisington. It was a three-tweet question, uh, a bit of a long one for Twitter, but I uh, made it work across three tweets. He writes, you guys were talking a couple weeks ago about how Oscar De La Hoya had a mixed record in big fights. I don't even consider myself a fan, but do we give him enough credit for always being willing to take on big challenges? Dude could have sold out stadiums fighting hotel maids, but he's game for Shane, Tito, all comers. No upside to fighting Vargas, but sure, why not? Goes up and wait for Sturm and Behop, then back down to close out with two out of three against the top two fighters in the generation after him. Plenty to say about Oscar, but I don't think anybody could say he ever ducked anybody. How do you respond, Kieran? Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm really glad you asked this question. I guess the answer to it in terms of do we give him enough credit is who you mean by we. Um, right. I like to think I've given the guy a ton of credit for, for exactly that. Uh, I remember saying once on my old ESPN podcast. I used to have an ESPN podcast. Eric. Did you, know <laughs> you don't still. I don't still. Okay. I don't still for all the big fans out there wondering okay. where it's gone. Uh, yeah, I, I would say something very similar to what Tom said. The guy could have sold out stadiums by fighting me. Or I actually could have imagined him just getting a stool in the center of the ring, sitting down, opening up the yellow pages and just beginning aardvarks, because I just assume that's the first entry in the yellow pages and people would still <laughs> show up to see that. Um, it was interesting. Oscar, Oscar attracted an entirely more diverse crowd in, in many different ways. Um, you know, the octave level was always that little bit higher at Oscar fights because he was... He was a legit matinee idol. He was a boxing sex symbol. And as, as you said, Tom, he, he could have skated by on, on that alone easily. And we don't actually even have to speculate about the veracity of that. Uh, so like when he fought Patrick Charpentier at the Sun Bowl in El Paso in June 1998, he drew 45,000 fans. Right. Of, what, six were there for Charpentier? Mrs. Charpentier? <laughs> the little Charpentiers? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I remember during the peak of Manny Mania when Pacquiao was about to fight at Cowboy Stadium for the first time. We had a, a, a workout, a public workout, and there was a huge throng of fans. And I said to somebody from top rank, wow, man, this is amazing. I, I, I've never seen anything like this. And they just looked at me, said, you should have been around when Oscar was at his peak. It was, it was something else. Um, and yes, despite all that, he sought out the toughest fights. And his record suffers a little bit because he did seek out the toughest fights um uh it doesn't mean we shouldn't chide him for some of the results that went against him yes he should have gotten the, the nod against felix trinidad but it's his own fault that he scooted around the edges of the ring for the last four rounds uh he did better than many expected against floyd mayweather but he could have done better still if he hadn't just decided to stop throwing his jab over the second half of the fight um against that first fight against Shane Mosley just a fantastic fight two guys at the top of their game second fight against Shane Mosley he could have won that easily and Shane was juiced going into it uh I don't think he ever stood a chance against Bernard at middleweight and by the time he faced Pacquiao he was done but and of course he wound up on the winning side a lot of those marquee matchups uh, and of course the most memorable surely being the one that you Eric have 
uh, covered in some depth uh, the, the win there against Fernando Vargas. But right. yeah, look, the important thing is he took them. You're quite right, Tom. Absolutely. And yes, he's a professional boxer. That's what boxers should do. Fight other boxers, fight other really good boxers. But if we criticize fighters for not doing that, I think we should give them credit for when they do. And Oscar really is the prime example of a guy who didn't have to take these risky fights and did so repeatedly. Yeah, and made other fighters bigger as a consequence as well. We should say that. Yeah, yeah, it's a gr- it's a great point that his final gift to boxing essentially was passing the baton to yeah. the two guys who carried the sport for a decade or so after he was gone. But yeah, I I do think that Oscar has always been underrated by some people. People who saw the Pretty Boy and just mm-hmm. couldn't be convinced that he was an elite fighter. Yeah. I'm not going to name names, but there was a boxing writer 20 years or so ago who insisted he could beat Oscar in a street fight, even though this writer had no fighting skills whatsoever. He insisted he'd beat Oscar, and he wasn't kidding. He really believed it. Such was his inability to comprehend how someone could be handsome and a great boxer at the same time. Uh, So I'll tell you off the air who it was. You might might have a guess formulating. Uh, But um, so, yeah, some people underrated Oscar throughout his career. And I think since he retired and, you know, he's had his personal troubles and mini scandals and his fighting career has faded into the rear view a bit, he's become underrated by a lot of people. It's been easy to forget how great he was. But, you know, sure, from the, the, the midpoint of his career on against the top guys, he lost as often as he won. But he was a true great. Fr- from his own era, you have to put guys like Floyd and Manny and Roy and Bernard ahead of him. But Oscar is on that very next tier. Uh, and, and, and he most definitely did fight everybody. His ring resume is a who's who. Oscar's fights alone really tell much of the story of that era in boxing. Yeah, and if he'd taken care of himself outside the ring, too, you wonder how, even how much better he might have been. There's no right. uh, denying his demons and the issues that he had, but mm-hmm. there you go. All right, look, that will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. A reminder to submit questions to the podcast at hashtag AskShowPod. Uh, as we said earlier, we'll be back at least one more time this week with a bonus podcast in advance of the Shields Hammer fight. It's going to be a very special one. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that. And until then... Thank you very much for listening.